Are you all right? Do we have any Greeks in the congregation this morning? They've all gone. I know. Oh, I prepared a greeting as well, and it's just... Oh, well. What? Do you know the response? Do you? Christos Anesti. There you go. Well done. So we have some kind of sneaky Greeks, pretense Greeks. Where did you learn that, Mike? Natalie taught you. Ah, good stuff. Timothy Crawford. Nice to see you. That's a nice surprise this morning. You all right? Jolly good. Okay, if you've got a Bible, I'm already impressed. If you'd like to open it up to Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read to you from verse 19 to 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I grew up with a mother um, who was fond of quoting a particular scripture to me. She always quoted from the King James Version, because that's the Bible that we had kicking around, and uh, it's the only one they ever used. And uh, She used to say, and it was usually in response to, Mom, what are we doing tomorrow? Or what are we doing next week? Or what will we do the day after that? You know what kids are like, don't you? And it was always sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And uh, it's basically this last bit. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. And it is a convenient response to a mother to give to a pestering son, which I was very good at, pestering. But um, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about, um, about investment about where we invest. But um, before I do that, I'm going to invite Nathan. Nathan was baptized at New Life last week. And I thought... (laughs) 
Those who've been in Firestorm will have seen Nathan around because he's been involved in youth for a, a long time. But um, Nathan's just going to come and share his testimony. I thought it was a good one, and I thought you'd like to hear it. There you go. They've just arrived for you. You see, the Lord has provided. <laughs> Do not worry about your notes. Okay, Nathan, come and stand here and steal that mic there. I'm going to sit down. Does it need switching on? Okay, so this is the um, this is the, the speech that I gave at my baptism. So my family raised me in the Christian faith, and I would say that all throughout my life I would have called myself a Christian. I would even say that I've experienced the Holy Spirit a few times. However, when I was in secondary school and sixth form, I wasn't placing Jesus as my first priority. I would only talk about my faith to my friends if it came up in the conversation. Evangelizing to them seemed highly unlikely. To use a common metaphor, Jesus was in the back of my car and I was driving it. I was building lots of creative plans for my life. In, in 2020, I released an album of electronic music to YouTube. It's not that good, don't listen to it. And I was then planning to make a jazz album and then a rock album. Then I had an idea of making song mashups and before I knew it, I had plans for whole conceptual albums of song mashups. I thought I had my life planned out for the next five, maybe 10 years. This all changed on the 26th of June, 2021, when I went to Advanced Youth, which is this youth evangelism training thing, which is run by a guy called Aaron, who I'm assuming some of you know. Uh, I was originally putting off going to Advanced Youth's monthly meetings, but decided to join this one. Aaron began the session by preaching on Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that is which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Aaron was talking about things which have eternal significance and things which in the long run have no significance at all, such as my music, which was getting like 20 listens on YouTube. He said, what are your achievements on earth going to mean in a million years? And that sentence really made everything slam into perspective for me. We humans dream of being remembered in history for a few hundred, maybe a few thousand years, but ultimately, we are going to be forgotten about. So maybe I shouldn't base my life around trying to make myself famous. The next event which convicted me was a few months later in my church when we decided to kneel before the stage as an act of surrendering our lives to Jesus. Now, I'd, I've heard people using that kind of terminology before, surrendering your life to Jesus, but I'd never really thought about what that meant and I started getting worried about what that might mean. I thought that Jesus was going to take everything from me and I was going to become some sort of monk living in the desert. I thought he was going to take away my personality and my sense of humor. In the back of my head, I knew it was the right thing to do, but I was still feeling comfortable with certain sins. 
And when you have sinning as part of your identity, giving your life to Jesus really does sound like giving up everything. Then in August, I went with the youth to DTI, Dreaming the Impossible, which is this, it's like a convention for Christian young people. We had lots of fun and general silliness, which I captured in a three-part video documentary. You can search that up on YouTube. That's actually good. <laughs> there were also, um, do we have, do we have a video? We don't have a video. There were also many thought-provoking talks that I went to, particularly this talk that a guy called Zeke gave on the morning before he packed up and left. And he was talking about how to like, live a Christian in your daily lives. And he was discussing about how like, some Christians, they're just, they're just lukewarm. Like they claim they're a Christian, but they're not living it. He said that the greatest cause of atheism is Christians who preach Jesus with their lips, but deny him by their lifestyle. And he, just, he actually started crying halfway through because he just, he just, I think he was just so depressed with what people who call themselves Christians, how they were behaving. And... And yeah, it was, it was very powerful. And the talk he gave made me realize the kind of Christianity I was practicing was hidden. My salt was not salty. I wasn't being a particularly bad person, but by the way I was living, there was a very slim chance of my actions leading to anyone getting saved. I realized what living for Jesus actually is. It's putting him in the driver's seat. At this point, I was like, you know that episode of Mr. Bean where he's at a public swimming pool? And he's on that really high diving board, and he wants to jump off, but he's too scared. So he gradually eases himself off, and he wants to jump off, but at the same time, he doesn't. That was me with God at this point. I was absolutely, definitely going to surrender my life to him. Just not yet. The rest of the summer holidays were brilliant, and throughout it, I definitely felt the Holy Spirit working in me. There were certain sins that I used to be comfortable with and only didn't do because my parents told me not to, which I now felt personally offended by. It was like God was saying, right, you've had your fun in secondary school, living for yourself. It's a new chapter. You're going to live for me now. On the 8th of October, I arranged to meet up with Phil so I could discuss the fine print of surrendering my life to Jesus because I wanted to know exactly what I was getting myself into. I was still silently bargaining with God. In my head, I was keeping a list of sins that I still wanted to commit. When I spoke to Phil, he politely explained why I was wrong and we removed all the sins from the list one by one until there was nothing left. Then we prayed, and I said for the first time, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Now, I'm not a very emotional person, but I cried three times that day. And it was like, I think around six months passed because of my university course, but yeah, I got, I got baptized last week, and here I am now. I thought you should hear that because there's nothing quite like just the freshness of when someone really does become a disciple rather than a spectator. And, uh, you know, the fact is, is that we are often encouraged to spectate in church life. But Jesus was never looking for spectators. He was looking for disciples. And uh, I remember that meeting with Nathan that he talked about. And Nathan... I don't think I've ever seen you cry, okay? But it was a very strange meeting because the Lord was clearly all over him. And, uh, and we just talked and I said, so what's holding you back? He said, well, I, I do fully intend to surrender at some point, but I'm just thinking 
Um, and then he said, actually, who am I fooling? There's no reason why I shouldn't give my life to Jesus now. And um, as he prayed that prayer, he sobbed his way through it. And uh, the Lord just came and touched him. And he's just been a massive blessing to me since that time. He was always a massive blessing. Uh, he's fantastic around youth group. But to see the tenacity of someone who just wants to follow Jesus getting up again and again and again when we're disappointed. Because we do get disappointed, don't we? Is it just me? Yeah. When things don't work out, when you try, you feel that the Lord says something and you try and go for it and it doesn't happen the way you want it to. And then it takes courage to get up again and again and again. I'm going to come back to that towards the end. Um, I have a very short time this morning because Nathan has stolen uh, half my... He hasn't stolen, I gave it to him as I was being lazy, obviously. So um, I want to have a look at this passage. I want to um, just look first of all at verse 25. If you've got it in front of you, it's worth having it there. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? So quick question, are you a worrier? Yeah, yeah. Who here? Let's just have confession time. Hands up if you're worried. Don't pick your nose, put your hands right up. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes worries. And, and, and worrying comes from not knowing the future, doesn't it? Mum, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? We want to know. We want everything planned out. And the problem is, is that actually the call to follow Christ is a very real one. It's a very practical one. It is a, a call to practically trust him day by day, every day to get up in the morning and put the time in his hands, as Nathan said, to put him in the driving seat and trust him. And that doesn't come naturally to us. And sometimes we can come up with all sorts of ways of doing our Christianity that aren't really very biblical. So my question to you this morning is, how practical is this? How seriously should we take these teachings of Jesus? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or what you should wear. I mean, would this not undermine the whole fashion industry? Would it not undermine the whole Uber Eats industry? You know, should you, is that really how Jesus expects us to live? Is he expecting us to live as a way without ambition? Now, I get into trouble for sometimes saying this, because, um, you know, I, I have a thing about ambition, and Christians, okay? Because we can be incredibly ambitious about our lives. We can plan our lives out and work out where we want to go, what we want to do. In, you know, in the way that Nathan said, he had a five-year plan already, and that's young. It's partly because he's very organized. I'd never had a five-year plan in my life. But, and Caroline says to me, uh, she says, there's not an ambitious bone in your body. Now, she's wrong, profoundly wrong. Okay, but what she's saying is, I don't see you fighting to make your way very often. And that's from two places. One is because I've learned that it doesn't work with Jesus. Okay, that organizing my life and making it how I want it to be rarely comes to any great fruit in my life. It also comes from something much more basic and much more fleshly. Just being honest is that I'm afraid of getting it wrong. So I don't make big plans because I'm afraid that they will fail. 
Usually, I make big plans eventually after God pushes me into it and says, this is my plan, and then I have to fight for it. So my lack of ambition in life is not necessarily a godly thing. It's just as much a fleshly thing as it is uh, anything else. But actually, what is Jesus calling us to here? Is he calling us to a lifestyle which just says, Jesus, you're in the driving seat. I don't take control. Is he calling us to be passive? I'm just being honest, okay? Is that what he's calling us to? Is he calling us to a passive lifestyle where God makes all the decisions and you make none? Now, you are hoping that I'm going to say no, and I will, but I want to qualify it. There's a, I came across a YouTube video the other day. I did something quite rare, is I chased a thread on YouTube. Um, I was careful about, usually careful what I chased, but I came across this little documentary about lying flat. Has anyone ever heard about lying flat? There you go, you're about to be educated this morning, okay? <laughs> lying flat is a movement, okay? It comes out of China, and it comes out of a young generation in China, okay? And the Chinese people, the young people in China, are so fed up with being driven and pushed to succeed all the time that some of them, as it started with a young man, and it's spread across China, and it's gone into parts of Japan, and also now it's spreading across America. So if you, if you come across lying flat, you heard it here first. So lying flat is a rebellion against the driven lifestyle. It basically says, I am not going to be a consumer. I'm going to work for two days a week. I'm going to work. I'm going to have a low footprint in terms of money, in terms of what I spend. I'm going to spend little so I don't need to earn much. I'm going to lie flat. I'm going to, I think, what's it called in Chinese? Um, Tang Ping. The lying fat, the, the Tang Ping Brigade, they call themselves, okay? The truth is that they have this passion which just says, if I consume less, then I need to earn less. Sound good? Yeah? So it's a kind of a, a low footprint lifestyle. The problem is, it sounds really great in one sense, but what do they do? If they work for two days a week, what do they do with the other five days a week? They play computer games. So the reason they're doing it, ultimately, is it has some great, it's a reaction and a rebellion against the driven lifestyle, but actually it's still self-centered. It's still about, I don't want to get caught up in what my parents have got caught up in. I don't want to get caught up in what my parents are trying to get me caught up in. So I'm going to rebel and I'm going to spend all the time on the internet playing games. And then I'm going to work when I need to. And they do not take up contracts. They, they, it, there's this uh, scene I saw in China of this street in Beijing where employers are desperately looking for people to employ on a day-by-day -day basis because they can't get people to sign contracts. In many ways, this is what we're looking at with our younger generation. People disaffected and disillusioned about driven lifestyle disillusioned about our passion for money and so they're deciding to do as little as possible and sometimes it's because they're afraid okay but Jesus is not advocating a lying flat lifestyle he's calling us to consume less but not so that 
we don't have to do anything with our lives. He's calling us to consume less in order that we might have more to invest in the kingdom. He's calling us not to stop investing our lives, but to invest them in a different place, in a different way. I had a very, very embarrassing service that I was leading worship at once when I was running in flame. And there was a guy, uh, he was a, a good friend of mine at that point. I haven't seen him for many years, but his name was Phil Wall, and he used to work for the Salvation Army. And he was preaching at Winchmore Hill Baptist Church. And I was leading worship, and we had just started End Flame. And Phil and I were chatting beforehand. And at the end, it was a, a church packed full of fairly middle-aged people and uh, fairly middle-class people. And, uh, and he was talking, I can't even remember what he was preaching about. I remember, be, mostly because it got buried in embarrassment. He stood at the end, he said, can I ask a question? How many of you here have got money squirreled away? And there was absolutely no reaction. He said, come on, lift up your hands, confess, Christians, be honest. And so people began to put their hands up. He said, how many of you got in excess of, and you know, he began to reel figures out. And I was thinking, where's this going? You know, and it sounded like he was going to make an appeal. And um, he said, Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. So what I want you to do is go home and close those bank accounts and give all the money to end flame so they can invest it in the kingdom of God. At this point, I wanted to shrivel and die on the front seat. He, I hadn't set up, you know, this was the last thing I wanted. And he was making a point. Is it a valid point? Well, it's certainly an embarrassing point. Do you think it's a point that Jesus would have made? I suspect it might be. Not the end flame bit. Okay. But Jesus here is talking about Christians. He's not saying be ambitionless or stop investing. He's saying, where are you going to invest? Where do your ambitions lie? In fact, I'd like to say to you, uh, in a moment, that God longs for ambitious Christians who will seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Because there is stuff that will fade. There is stuff we can't take with us. We can't even take the bricks and mortar with them. We can pass them on to our children. But actually, this is advocating a lifestyle which flies directly in the face of Western capitalism. I'm going to say this again. Jesus is advocating a lifestyle. He's saying travel light, have a small footprint, not so that you can invest nothing, but that you can invest everything in the kingdom. Jesus is not calling us to be ambitionless. He's calling us to be full of ambition for his kingdom. Are you with me today? Yeah. Some of you are thinking, okay, what do I do with that nest egg now? So no one, says Jesus, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in my King James Bible, it says you cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, it, It's kind of a, a bit of a, a deeper word. It's not just cash, but it is actually that desire for acquisitive capitalism. It's the desire for self. I'm not preaching communism today, just in case you're worried, okay? But the desire and hunger for wealth is what the Bible calls mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Money is a great servant, I think, but it's a lousy master and will kill you if you allow it to get to that place in your life where it calls the shots. Money is a gift. Jesus used it. We're called to use it, but it's called for us to use rather than it uses us. I have countless stories, um, and this is something that grieves me week by week. I have countless stories of people who I started out on the road with as Christians, who were passionate, fired-up evangelists, who lost their way because of two things, sex and money. Okay, People who just thought to themselves, I'm really, really going to do great things for God, and then the job came along, and then the promotion, and the next promotion, and the next promotion. And before they knew it, they were nowhere with God. Many of those have even fallen away from following Jesus completely. It is a trap. And if, if I was to say that it's not something we should be wary of, I would be doing less than my job. We need to be careful about the role that finances play in how we view life. They will kill. It will kill our Christianity. Uh, people, when they come to New Life, we, um, I think you do a similar sort of thing here, but at New Life, uh, people often come and they, they join for the first time and they come to a newcomer's lunch or something and then they'll say, we've noticed that there's no money box at the back for us to give. Uh, where do we put our tithes and our offerings? <laughs> And I, said, uh, I say to them, look, I'm, I'm not going to get theological about this because I don't really want to make a theological point. But we have chosen practically not to encourage people to give 10% of their income because we would like people to give everything. Because actually that's what Jesus is calling us to. I could get in trouble for this, um, but from my perspective, tithing is an Old, old Testament thing that we've carried through into the New Testament. It, is, it has deep truth to it. But I believe that Jesus is calling us to give everything and lay down everything we own for the sake of the kingdom of God. And what you then do with it, you need to manage the whole lot. It's not like, God, you can have 10%. I get to decide what happens with the 90. It's, Lord, what do you want to do with the 100? Are you with me? Hmm. Some of you are not so sure now. You see, we are called to live our lives not to feather our own nest, but to build or to allow through us God to build his kingdom. To use everything that we have at our resources for him to build his kingdom on earth. Everything else is temporary. The kingdom of God is permanent. Nathan said it so well. People want to be remembered for a hundred years, a thousand years, but ultimately all of these things rot. They will fade. Only the kingdom of God endures forever. And so we're called to live our lives to serve. Now we're encouraged very often, and, and you know, uh, throughout the last couple of two or three years, um, this sort of thing has, has become really prevalent in our society because we're encouraged to protect and to look after other people and then look after ourselves and take care of ourselves. But ultimately, if that drives us into a life where we're not giving our lives in service to Christ, then we're not living Christianity. Ultimately, we're called to serve. I remember the testimony 
Has anyone ever heard of Chris Tomlin? He's a well-known American worship leader. Joined a big church as a young man. And, uh, and uh, he, he went after, you know, he's a fantastic musician. Went up to the leader after a few weeks. Said, I'd really like to serve here. And, uh, and they said, okay, uh, well, the chairs need putting out first thing in the morning. And he said, well, I was thinking of something perhaps a little bit more in line with my gifting. I'm a musician. And they said, oh, no, we've got plenty of those. And he said, oh, what can I do then? And, I said, and the pastor said to him, well, I told you, we need chairs put out. So he went away and he prayed and he said, Lord, what should I do? This is not in line with my gifting. And the Lord said to him, until you can serve me in the dirt, I'll never have you serve anywhere else. And so he gave himself to putting out chairs for the next two years. And eventually, after two years, the pastor said to him, I know you're a great musician. We could have used you two years ago, but I wanted to see where your heart was. You see, our works do not save us. But Jesus and James, and in fact the whole of the New Testament is emphatic, they do tell where your heart is. You can't tell me that you're passionately in love with Jesus if you don't serve him day after day. I can't tell you the same thing. Because our hearts are betrayed by our choices, what we do with our lives. Are you with me? Mm, not sure. Um, there's a, a big church in London where they were looking for a new pastor. And the old pastor was interviewing people. And uh, he said that, they interviewed a whole load of people, and then he would take them for a walk around the local park nearby. And uh, there was a particular area where um, people used to do drugs. There were needles and broken bottles all over the place. And he said some people were interviewed really well, but uh, he said he didn't even consider anyone until he walked, after they'd interviewed, he walked them around the park, and they said, excuse me, for a moment, got a plastic bag and began to pick up broken bottles and needles. And he said, then I began to take them seriously. Where do you invest? You see, Jesus invested in you. Do you know that God bets on lame horses? <laughs> if you have any dreams about being anything less than a lame horse, you've misunderstood who you are. God didn't choose you because of your gifting. He didn't choose you because of your resources. He didn't care about your resources too much. I'm sorry, when you're stacked up the resources that God has in heaven, he doesn't need to worry about what you've got going for you. Jesus chose you. God sent Jesus into this world because he loved you, period. Getting a bit American there. Full stop. Okay. Purely because he loves, Christ came into the world to invest in things that are uninvestable. Do you know New Life is built on a site that years ago, it was not a Baptist church, it was a, a, a chap called John Knight who wanted a building to start uh, a mission hall and they had some meetings at Hazelwood Lane, um, uh, this is 120 years ago, and then they looking for a site and there was nowhere that they could afford, so they bought a piece of land that no one else would buy. It was marshland. It was flooded all the time. And so they built a building on stilts. That is now 
was Palmer's Green Baptist Church, now is New Life Christian Centre. And after they drained the land, or after the government paid to drain the land, they actually built the bottom story. Okay. But they invested in something that was stupid. I love, one of my sending, one of my calling verses, the thing that really got me as a young Christian was this. For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. You see, I'm really grateful for that, that verse because in myself, I don't have a great deal going for me. And I know it. And I know that people say, oh, Phil, you're being down on yourself and all that. Don't beat yourself up. I'm not beating myself up. I'm just being honest. Everything good that has ever happened in my life has come from him, not from me. God invested in me. He chose a lame horse because no one else can ride a horse and heal it on the road like Jesus can. And Jesus comes and offers himself to us, an investment into our lives and says, surrender to me and you can receive me fully into your life. And I will heal you on the journey. And you'll be faced day after day after day with your inadequacies, with your lack of strength, with your lack of purpose, with your lack of ability, and you'll be forced on your knees to call on him and say, God, I need you. Because ultimately, those are the servants that Jesus is looking for. I get caught up so often as a Christian, as a leader, thinking, oh, they would make a great evangelist. Oh, they would make a brilliant worship leader. But I can't see their hearts. It's just like Samuel looks at David's brothers and says, that was, surely this is the one. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm looking for a lame horse. Someone whose life is mine. And God is looking for the same today. He's still looking for those in whom he will invest. Because God is calling us to be investors. And I, I kind of want to fly in the face really the lying flat brigade. We're called to live simply. I believe it with all my heart. But especially young guys, young girls. And by that, I mean anyone younger than me, which is most of you, okay? Or a good deal of you anyway. The church is getting younger as I, every time I come here, okay? Invest in the kingdom of God. What is the principal line that Jesus comes to at the end of this text? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you and I want to encourage you to be an investor in the kingdom of God and I want to encourage you and say that all of the stuff that comes with normal financial investment is also true of the way we invest in the kingdom of God we invest not knowing what our return will be that's the problem. We want to invest on a, a sure done deal, won't we? don't we? You know, you, you hear stories of, you know, give us this money, it's a dead cert. Nothing is a dead cert. If you're investing finances, nothing's a dead cert. My parents-in-law invested a whole load of stuff, and then the, the, the 
the Twin Towers came down um, you know, in the terrorist attack and they lost so much stuff. Was their investment bad? No. But they're subject to the ebb and flow of what goes on. And investing in the kingdom, we invest into Jesus without knowing that we're going to get a dead cert. So when Jesus tells the parable of the man or the three guys who are given money and said, invest it, or he says, here's the money, I'm off for a while, I'm coming back. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's asking them to invest the resources that he's put at their disposal in his kingdom. Now, I said before, nothing's a dead sir. Actually, it is a dead sir. Everything you invest in Jesus is guaranteed to return for his blessing and for the blessing of those around you. But it's not guaranteed to make you rich. If you think it's going to make you rich, you're into dodgy theology. Sorry, but you are. When we invest, we invest knowing that Christ is the one who gets the glory, not me. But I want to encourage you. This is a season. I don't know what this season is, but I know this world is crazy, mixed up, and I know it's getting worse. Okay? I know that there's uncertainty around every corner. I know that all sorts of things happening financially in this nation, all sorts of things happening in terms of what money's worth, where we're going to get our gas and electricity from. This is a crazy time in terms of the world to start speculating financially, but it's the best time to invest in the kingdom. There is no better time than now to think about what is at our disposal and say, how can I invest this in the purposes of the kingdom of God? I'm not trying to persuade you to give all your money to Chase. Please believe me, I'm not. Most of you do that. But sow for a harvest, even in this season. What does Paul say? I preach the gospel in season and out of season. In season and out of season. And we will be encouraged and pushed to, to button the hatches, batten the hatches down at the moment. The whole world is uncertain and everyone will be saying to each other, you know, hold on to what you got, cling to it. Please know, your life is his. It's for investing in the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Is it William Carey said this? And I want just to say this to a young generation and to my generation as well. Expect great things for God, from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Perhaps I should say attempt crazy things for God. Attempt impossible things for God. Attempt things that are without him impossible. And remember that nothing is possible, nothing is impossible with him. So I'm going to pray and wrap up there for this morning. And then I think the band are going to do some more. But we're not called to live safe, church. We're called to live for him. 
Paul says this. Nathan quoted it. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. Sure, everyone wants that. The fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's a wholeheartedness in the gospel to live for him and hang the consequences knowing that he will protect that which is entrusted to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church which has been a home to me and these dear friends who have been family to me for many years. I thank you for the legacy of this church. I thank you for the legacy of lives invested. I thank you for the lives of those that have gone before us who are now with you. Those who now rest in Christ, but whose lives still speak and still echo because they invested in the kingdom. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would not honor their memory and live differently but we would honor their memory and live like them. That we too would seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and trust you with everything else. Let your spirit continue to move among us this morning and strengthen us that we would be more and more surrendered to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.